Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us every other week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training, and today I'm interviewing Kim Brophy. We're talking about the e- about ethology and how it relates to dog training. So, Kim, can you go ahead and just introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Uh, sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Kim Brophy and I own the Dog Door Behavior Center in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, we have kind of a unique approach in the industry because I have a background in applied ethology. So that's the lens through which we work with dogs in our area here and are trying to help introduce that lens to the greater dog training community nationally and internationally too. So let's kind of start off right off the bat with what is ethology um, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar? So ethology is the study of animal behavior and generally ethologists historically uh, study animals in their natural habitat. And so um, ethologists, uh, you know, famous ethologists like Conrad Lorenz um, did a lot of extensive work looking at what was at the time called fixed action patterns and then releasing stimuli for uh, innate behaviors in animals and um, and of course, though, the whole world of ethology is always taking into consideration the context of the environmental conditions and the habitat for that particular animal, their niche in nature, um, and again, the genetics they're bringing to the table, as well as how they're learning and adapting to conditions in those environments throughout the course of their life. And uh, applied ethology, which is uh, the field that I'm particularly in, is a small field, so we don't have a lot of us in the United States, but it looks at uh, the behavior of Uh, human and animal behavior in captive and domesticated species and kind of the intersection of that. So largely focusing on the animal's behavior, but also how our behavior affects their behavior in those situations. Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about, like, I think we often forget that when we think about the environment or the ecology that you find an animal in, um, you know, that for our dogs, that includes whatever environment they're in, like, just because ethology is traditionally thinking about, you know, chimpanzee behavior or ant behavior, um, we can use those same lenses to look at our our dogs and the environment is our home or, you know, the streets or wherever they are. Yeah. And, and actually, I know we were talking right before we started here about our kind of shared love for ecology and, and conservation. And, you know, E.O. Wilson was um, uh, one of the key authors and, and thinkers that influenced my uh, work when I was in college and kind of my approach to getting into ethology and applied ethology. And, I, you know, you take something from his work, um, for instance, he has a whole chapter in biophilia about the importance of habitat selection mm-hmm. and, and just the relevance of that for every species and and the whole concept of like finding the right lock for your key genetically and and normally nature just kind of does a lot of that work for you you're born into the right habitat for which you were selected because you're that just happens to be the ecosystem you're you find yourself in and I think we forget that for dogs even though all those same forces are at play they don't get to select their habitat and we're, we're in one home habitat and we might move habitat six times over the course of their life. And then we have the greater neighborhood, the cities, the places we visit, the parks, et cetera. Um, and, and it really does throw a cog in the work, so to speak for them sometimes and complicates it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you have to think that automatically any animal born in the wild is in some amount of an appropriate niche because its parents were successful enough to breed and raise, raise the young. And, 
you would hope that a lot of our our dogs that are breeding and producing are because they've been successful in a given niche, whether that's working sport or pet homes. But it seems like that's not, you know, that's certainly not always the case, you know. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's a particularly not the case now in the 21st century where a lot of the dogs that were historically bred for very specific purposes that were relevant for human survival, agriculture, um, uh, transhumans over, you know, lands and continents, et cetera. I mean, the, a lot of these behaviors that were so particularly developed and fine-tuned are, are now rendered not only obsolete, but undesirable. We really don't want the behaviors in our pet dogs that our ancestors bred them for. And yet we preserve breed standards. And along with that form comes the function that created it in the first place. And so it's complicated when we have a lot of dogs that are really just um, a fish out of water in their habitat in modern America and even other industrialized countries. Yeah, yeah. So I think kind of on that note, um, let's talk a little bit about how we can think about ethology with different kind of breeds and breed groups. And I know that could literally take us six hours because you could probably waste an hour per breed group. So why don't we why don't we pick like a breed group or two to kind of briefly go over and then at the end we'll obviously tell people where they can go to find more of your lectures and learn more. Um I am particularly particularly biased in putting in a request for maybe herding dogs and then um why don't we do one that I know almost nothing about. So like terriers or hounds. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Herding dogs are always fun because they're the poster child for so much of the problems that we're having these days. <laughs> what are the problems? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a fun one to dig into, really. Um, so, with with herding dogs, you know, it's 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 interesting. You go way back when, before we really had the the genetic diversity that we do in modern dog breeds, and you look at the original natural dogs. And so one of the, one of the older herding breeds, you know, something like uh, a Samoyed, for instance, which was a coarse herding breed. So they were used for some reindeer herding, but of course those dogs still have a closer to intact predatory sequence. And so they probably were finding, oh, you know, it's really helpful when the dogs move with us to, to move our, our flocks and our herds, but they don't actually bite the animals. So the one dog, for instance, you know, out of these uh, small steps from their their original ancestors uh, didn't actually fully engage in their target, the prey. And yet just the modified predation of um, stalking and chasing moved the animals. And, and once humans were able to use that relationship, we were developing with them at the same time to help control the movement of livestock. It was like, wow, this is really helpful. And so they would be breeding one that was exhibiting some of those behaviors with another that was exhibiting some of those behaviors. You know, none of us can look back into history and see exactly how those moments went, but it's, it's interesting to think, how did all of that happen? Where were those original conversations and choices yeah. about which dogs we were, we were breeding together? But what happened as a result is that, you know, you, you have like a base variety within the gene pool back then. And within that, just like with people, you have some more like type A's, type B's, some that are more hypervigilant, some that are uh, a little more sensitive to environmental stimuli, um, maybe even a little more controlling towards elements in the environment. And with, with herding dogs, I'm sure you've seen this too. It's not just moving groups that they tend to be triggered to respond to. They also tend to be kind of socially controlling. 
yeah. you know, even yeah. within their, their homes and their friends and at the dog park and daycare, we frequently call them the fun police for those of mm-hmm. us who've spent a lot of time around herding dogs and other animals or, um, you know, and people that are having good time. And so, you know, I think it, you can almost make a joke out of it, but we were selecting over and over again for this type of type A personality that's very hypervigilant, very accounting, um, very detail oriented uh, with a, a nervous system that was more sensitive to those environmental stimuli. Um, and then we selected for further things like higher arousal action in the face of those environmental, sudden environmental contrasts and changes. Um, and, and then in addition, we started selecting for things like attentiveness to us in the presence of high arousal stimuli and the drive to take action to control the circumstances, which is kind of this special little key that we have with herding dogs that's so unique, where we have a very high arousal, hypervigilant, sensitive animal to all kinds of changes in the environment that is absolutely selected to take action towards those conditions. And yet, like we were talking about before we started, they keep looking to us for information. And that's so particular to the herding dog group in terms of the the need for information, the dependence on us for guidance and information about how to strategize with those things. Um, And and of course, that was necessary because otherwise the shepherds were going to find that their herding dogs took their flocks right off the mountainside or over to their neighbor's Mm -hmm. farm instead of back to the barn. You know, so all of these little selective forces that have gone into fine tuning this group of herding dogs for a variety of different kinds of flock animals over the course of the, um, you know, centuries uh, have resulted in a, a, a breed group of dogs that while highly functional and capable for a variety of incredibly complicated tasks does really poorly in your average pet home. Because if you think about your average American home where, you know, the dog is going to be confined and indoors for the large majority of the day. I I mean, most of my clients, I would argue their dogs are inside upwards of 22 hours a day. You know, Uh, if you think about the average person, they're doing like an hour walk or run, and then maybe three or four pee breaks during the day. Uh, And other than that, life's just going on. They're working, the kids are in school. Uh, We add into that, maybe we have like a highly active neighborhood with kids riding their bikes by the house and, you know, neighbors walking by. Uh, We have kids coming in and out of the house, maybe with the revolving door thing, because you've got an active neighborhood, so they don't even knock anymore. They're just coming in and out. So we have a high level of sudden environmental contrast and change overstimulated, definitely over frustrated, not given a lot of guidance and direction about what they're supposed to do in the face of these conditions. They're just not bred to be passive kind of type B companions in that sense. You know, they're, they're real working dogs with working minds. And so um, I always feel really bad for herding dogs because I think, um, you know, on some level, you could make a good case that a lot of the artificial selection that humans have done over the years to different breeds of dogs constitute genetic uh, neurotic behavior. And I think herding dogs are something that would have not have arisen on their own. I do not think nature would have created something that hypervigilant. It, it, they, the level of energy they expend worrying about what's happening in the environment or what might happen in the environment is just, it, it's not economical, you know? So there are certain things that break laws that nature just wouldn't have selected for, like no economy of behavior and, and neurological um, uh, extension of energy. And so, you know, 
when we were at Laurel, Laura Donaldson's presentation from Mike Shikashio's aggression conference this last weekend, um, she was talking about um, catastrophizing. I don't know if you heard her talk, but it was funny because in the world of psychology, they have this phenomenon that she uses to talk about dogs that have anxiety in the face of modern condition of catastrophizing, like worst case scenario. And all I could think of was hurting dogs <laughs> in that moment was they genetically catastrophize. You know, children are running down the street and they're like, oh, my gosh, everything is out of order. I have to do something to regulate the conditions. Um, and and we, we bred, them into, bred that into them, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think about kind of those classic like hurting dog cases that you get if you take aggression cases where it's like, well, he's fine with guests until they get up to go to the bathroom. Um, and that's such a classic, like, you know, it's like I, I almost immediately I'm like, Border Collie, German Shepherd, you know, like, right. <laughs> Aussie, baby. <laughs> right. Uh, um, because, yeah, they're, they're like, oh, my gosh, one of the animals is leaving the group or, you know, right. assume that's one of the things they're 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 that is cutting off that instinct for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're selected for that wanting status quo. Right. I want order out of the chaos. I want the ducks in a row and the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And they're always working to reestablish order. Yeah. And so something yeah. as small as someone standing up or re-entering a room after going to the bathroom can set them off. And I do think it's erroneous to call it just aggression or anxiety when they are instincts that we have selected into that group of dogs. It may still be maladaptive. It may still be unhealthy. You could even make the case that may, maybe they're all pathological in some way, but it's still normal within the breed group. And then yeah. you get into all sorts of other ethical questions about, well, should we still be breeding them for non-working homes, you know, or for non-professional homes? Those, those are interesting and difficult questions to answer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a huge question. I, I mean, I love my border collie and I fully expect my next dog to be another border collie, but um, I will, I will say that a full 50% of the border collies I know, if not more, when I meet them, I'm kind of like, ooh, I don't know if they like you. Um, <laughs> you're not. And I mean, that's similar to the, uh, when I worked in the animal shelter, um, the vast, vast majority of German shepherds. It was just like, gosh, we've bred these dogs for so much hypervigilance and we bred them to bark at stuff that changes in their environment. And it's such that, you know, you're walking with such a nice touch with, with those behaviors where it's so easy to go from this hypervigilance to just full on neuroticism. And even when they're at quote unquote, the right level of hypervigilance for the breed, it's a lot for the environments we put them into. And, I know I'm someone who has, I struggle with some anxiety and I struggle with some control issues. Um, and uh, I've got to like, yeah, it, it's hard to say that it would be ethical to intentionally keep producing this same feeling um, in our dogs all the time. If they feel similar to how I do when I feel like things are out of order and I don't have control and it's stressing me out and I want to like, you know, uh, like rearrange my bookshelf by color or something so that makes me feel better <laughs> yeah oh and i i have two tangents i want to go off yeah. on on there if you if you'll humor me and one is um karen overall's description of impulse control behavior years ago talks about dogs that feel and this really makes sense like think about all of us in covid when we feel like the shit hits the fan <laughs> when we feel like things are going wrong and we become anxious for whatever reason too many moves too many changes we're just a border collie and life just feels that way 
because things are never ordered enough, whatever the case might be, we have a grasping for straws reaction. It's stress cleaning. It's reorganizing the bookshelf, just like you talked about, because it makes us feel like we have a sense of control over our environment. Is it then fair if we see such a high, like, uh, a disproportionate number of herding dogs that have impulse control behavior towards events in their environment that's speaking to a base chronic level of anxiety yeah. that these animals yeah. are experiencing. We've selected them to be so aware and so functionally active towards controlling events in their environment. But in lieu of the ability to do that, that's the very definition of madness. And it goes to the heart of why applied ethology in the first place looks at other species like farm animals and zoo animals and says, you have to give them, this is in the five freedoms, outlets for expressions of natural behaviors in confinement. But we don't do it with our own pet dogs. And isn't that just such a silent crime that nobody is talking about? Like, is, isn't it on some level just fundamentally inhumane to be selecting, breeding these dogs, and then placing them into conditions where they cannot express those natural behaviors. And then my second point I wanted to make is then we trainers are hired to come in and punish them in many cases for behaviors they didn't pick in the first place. Mm -hmm. And even through positive reinforcement, if you think about it, there are a variety of things that I could do. Let's say I'm going to do DRI with you. I'm going to do, you know, reinforcement of an incompatible behavior. Mm -hmm. But so you're feeling super stressed and anxious and you're like, oh gosh, I feel like I just need to organize my house. Just get out of my way. I want to put my, reorganize my books over here. I just need to feel some sense of control. And then I realize you're anxious and I'm like, come over here and we're going to waltz and we're going to dance. And then I'm going to give you some cake and then we're going to waltz. It might distract you. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's almost more confusing. It's almost more like, but why? Why am I dancing and waltzing for cake? Yeah. And then did it really address my need for control? You know, there's really complicated ethical issues there. And just avoiding punishment alone isn't enough. I have a real problem with how much we manipulate behavior that we don't even understand. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I know that this literally happened to me last night. I've been out of town for almost a month straight. Um, I had a, a little like two day break where I was home, but, um, you know, I got home and my, uh, my boyfriend was waiting and he was like, all right, let's cook dinner. You know, like I, I, I want to do a dinner and then like, yeah, we can like, you can take a bath, you know, like he had all these things and I was just like, honestly, I'm going to feel so much better if I know that it's crazy, but like, I want to sit down, I want to unpack, I want to do all the laundry. I want to like deal with my inbox. Like I will actually feel better if I do yep. that. Even though that God, that's such a good example, Kayla. Yeah, that's it, that's exactly what it is. And so when the border collie is like, I just, I just, I just need to just make the man sit down again. I just, if he'll sit down, then I could play with the ball. Yeah, but I can't play with the ball while the man is standing. And you know, even if ultimately we can't have the dog control the guest, we have to compassionately say, I see how you're feeling about the man. Yeah, I see yeah. that it is so stressful for you. And then start there. Start with that recognition, that validation of you didn't ask for this, but this is how you really feel. And so I have to meet you there before I move on about manipulating your behavior. And, and this is why I feel so strongly ethology does have to be part of our work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know it's something that I think we get a lot of pushback on when we try to go this route and ethology can help us have a good, a good lens for explaining it to clients where, you know, I'll often recommend like get your dog into tri-ball classes or 
you know, work on agility foundations or even like, you know, and one of the things we've also talked about is this like choice and control paradox where with a lot of these working line dogs, what they actually want is instruction. So like giving your dog a choice about whether or not to herd your guests doesn't really help. And give them a bone stick is just a distraction. So, you know, we can help them work through these, these instincts um, in a way that's just more compatible with what their instincts are telling them to do by giving them another job and saying, Hey, you know, you can, you, you're not going to go herd this person, but you know, you can, you can do this other incompatible behavior that is more similar to herding. And then we're going to let you go, go learn your herding skills elsewhere. I know I did some herding lessons with Barley when I first got him and they were super helpful for me in kind of, a understanding him a lot better and really getting to see like what he's bred to do and be a lot of those skills that we gained in herding lessons. I was then able to apply in other places and, you know, be like, Hey, remember that time you wanted to go after the sheep and I had you down because you're, or, you know, like walk up slowly or something. Why don't we do that same thing here? Um, and that made so much more sense to him. Um, totally. And and I love what you said. I've never heard anyone say it that way, but the choice and control paradox. You know, I've really talked a lot with my colleagues in the last few years about this because I think we have a tendency to oversimplify things. I get it. All humans do that. But we've put all this new value on choice and control, which trust me, as an ethologist, as an applied ethologist, that's at the top of my concern list for welfare appropriate choice and control of what do I want to do? Do I want to do this or do I want to do this? Do I want this or do I want to do this? But if you put an animal in a situation where they, they can't operate that level of choice and control, either they don't have the point of reference or the faculties to make those decisions, you know, it would be inappropriate if they took control of those circumstances, like with your guests, then, then you have to think, all right, where can I give you opportunities to express those instincts and where can I give you appropriate outlets of, you know, choice and control. And then also what I've found with the herding dogs that I've learned the hard way through trial and error and 20 years of casework is that because they're, it's weird. They, their underlying motivation is I just want the ducks in a row. So what I've realized, I, I joke with all my clients with herding dogs, you're going to go home and you're going to write, your barley manual or whatever it is. And it's going to be your protocol book. And everything you do is going to have a step one, step two, step three protocol. And you're just going to do things by the book. And if you just control the environment for them, they're, they are so much happier if the world feels like such a more predictable place because they're just type A. It's not that they even feel the need to control it themselves so much as they just need it to be controlled. Yeah, yeah. It's not it does us. I just don't want the sheep in 17 places um, or the cattle, or, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, what is, you know, and the, uh, this is partially kind of a selfish question, but I hope it's also helpful for, you know, anyone who's listening who works with a herding dog or works with clients with herding dogs. You know, what do you see when people, like, I feel like I often get this pushback when I say, like, hey, maybe it'll help to get your dog into herding lessons or into tribal lessons and they're like well doesn't that teach them to herd more and I feel like I often get a little bit stuck in answering that question of being like well yes it's an outlet and that's going to be helpful but then you know in the back of my head I'm also like well yeah you know anything that they practice is going to that's just going to strengthen those neural connections so how do you kind of help people see the the benefit in in giving these dogs an outlet 
Well, I've struggled with that same question more earlier in my career. I've gotten a little more comfortable with how I feel about it at this point. But I, I think it's a valid question, kind of in the same way that people would say, well, if I give my dog stuffed socks, won't it eat my kids teddy bears? Like, are, are they just not able to discriminate? And my experience is that they're very good at discriminating and mm-hmm. that it's it, you. one thing Gene Donaldson said years ago in Culture Clash is you can't put a brick wall in front of a natural behavior. You just can't put a brick wall in front of a natural behavior. And, you know, we know this, right, from ethology or ecology or biology. Like you, you can't say to the snake, you can never strike again. You can't say to, you know, a, an apex predator, no more eating meat for you, you know, out, out there in your natural environment. Like, and, and, you know, we find, oh yeah, Kim, that's funny, but these are just dogs. Well, most of them were bred, remember, for jobs of that don't, are not being pets. And so if, if you see a very strong drive, and, and again, we can argue that those selections are far more hypertrophied than anything that might even occur in nature among like subspecies of a species, they're really extreme and and arguably very neurotic behaviors. So we can't just be like, well, I bred all that intensity in and now I don't want it. So I don't want to encourage it. So my, my way of explaining this to clients, and this is true, how I explain like those, those neural pathways and those things connection, those connections and those things firing together is behavior is like water going through riverbeds. And you can direct the flow. If you dam one riverbed, You can direct the flow. If it is a strong force behind something, you can open up other channels and you can build a dam here. And if you build strong new connections for that same flow that are functional and make sense and they're intuitive and they work and they're close enough to the releasing stimuli for those original behavior, they can build new connections on appropriate outlets and it works. And so you can say this, not this, this, not this. Like we were talking about with the conference conservation and the scent work. That's how we do all scent discrimination. Is it not? We say, this is what I want you to find and alert on, not these things. And it can be a little bit of a process of elimination and some like, you know, definitely making sure that they're not able to have the opportunity to self-reinforce on the wrong things. You know, you can't just say, I'm going to do tribal and then I'm going to turn you out with the sheep and hope for the best. You'd have to prevent access to rehearsing sheep herding if you didn't want sheep herding because the neighbor will shoot your dog and then really work the heck out of building new neural pathways related to tribal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's go over another another breed group if, if you, you think. Um, I don't really care between like toy dogs, terriers, hounds. I don't know how, like, let's do one and then we'll see if we've got time for a third. Yeah, that sounds good. The group that I would like to talk about next is scent hounds, just because they're a nice contrast to what we were just talking about with the herding dogs. Um, so let's talk about like what a good scent hound is. And I, I think it's always really helpful to think. So whoever was breeding these dogs and using them, what did they want? What made a good scent hound? And a good scent hound would be the following. They get on a track. They stick to that track. Come hell or high water. They're going to persevere. We have selected for voice. 
which is the call of, I found it, I found it. This is when you hear a bunch of coyotes going through, you know, the back of the mountain behind your house or whatever, if you live in an area where we have them and they're all calling to each other, like, here it is, here it is, the rally cry kind of thing. And so we selected that up, which, you know, in my opinion, and this this is just my opinion on it, I think it's a strong selection for emotionalism because they're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. It's that super aroused yeah. moment. And we built it up and, and hounds do very much wear their heart on their sleeve. I mean, for better or for worse, they really do. Um, and so a, a good hound dog will not come off of that track for anything until they have located that prey. They are not a dog that was bred to work with a handler in how they're finding, locating, treeing, cornering, whatever that animal. Um, so they could work off arousal in a group of dogs and play off of each other that way, but they're very much competing to get there first. There's not a whole lot of cooperating or teamwork going on. Uh, so it's that like once aroused, all in, very emotional engagement and meant to not be distracted by any external stimuli at that point. In other words, you in the background going, buddy, buddy, come, buddy, come. <laughs> buddy doesn't even hear you. You know, if he's a good hound dog anyway, right? A good scent hound is not going to be deterred by any of those distractions. They're just going to keep going and they'll be willing to go three mountains over. And then suddenly your walker hound is, you know, in the next county. Yeah. So, yeah. It, you know, very different than um, the type of, a uh, neurotic kind of codependent relationship with people looking for information from us all the time. They tend to be better at self-entertaining in the home, you know, can sometimes play with their own toys for hours and think that that's super fun. Um, they tend to be kind of on or off as opposed to herding dogs that were bred to work for like 12 hour days in many situations, you know, where they're just working the farm all day long. These dogs were bred to probably, and in, in most cases, unfortunately, live tied up or secured on the farm somewhere and then taken out if they're lucky, maybe once a week or once a month to go and hunt. So it's not that they're necessarily hyperactive when they're off, but when they're turned on, they can become explosively active and aroused and engaged. And so when we have like a leash reactive hound dog that we're working with, most of the time it's just explosive emotion. You know, it's more than it is anger or anything. It's just arousal and explosive emotion. But it's very difficult to work with that behavior once it's turned on because it's bred to not turn off easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the first hounds that I ever worked with extensively was again back in the shelter and he was a, a fox hound. And I just remember like trying to teach this dog loose leash walking was like maybe the hardest training challenge I've ever had at that point. Um, because he was just it, like, I mean, so environmentally focused and this was before I'd gotten my, my border collie. So like, I wasn't even really into herding dogs yet. And I just remember taking this dog out and just being like, I mean, any amount of the most boring place we can go trying to click and treat for any amount of intention, attention from him is taking like, there's like a minute in between each click. <laughs> Right, right. And aren't we failing clients when we set the expectation that we have culturally and societally these last 10 years or something saying it's all how you raise them. So if you're not getting obedience out of your hound dog, even though it wasn't ever bred to be obedient in any way, shape or form, you know, um, cooperative, social, yes, but that's not the same as like compliant to instructions, you know? Yeah. And and so when, when the person has these expectations and trainers are facilitating these expectations that any dog, any breed, any size, it's all how you raise them. It's all my awesome techniques. And we're just ignoring the ethology. 
you know, at the least we're insulting the integrity of the dog and things that they're being, again, punished for or kind of distracted into that don't make sense to them. And then, you know, oftentimes making the owner feel horrible on top of that. Yeah, yeah. I, the reason I think has quickly become one of my my least favorite things to hear from people. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember again being a, a younger trainer and hearing someone kind of say, "Like, well, you can train a dog to anything to do anything it's physically capable of." Yeah, and it was like, no, really? Because I think you might see greyhounds entering herding trials then. <laughs> right. Um, right. <laughs> and why aren't they? Yeah. You know, what is the reason? Well, there are reasons for that because that is not the selective force of greyhounds. You know, um, I mean, they're more likely just to kind of notice a rabbit in the distance and then just disappear from the field entirely and forget you and your flock. You know, yeah. it's just not yeah. what they were what they were selected for. Yeah, I would um, greyhounds might look good for the first 30 seconds of a herd as they streak off towards the sheep. And then chase the sheep or I, or just, you know, keep going. But like that, that first fetch might look like it's going really well. Um. <laughs> right. You know, and, and one, I had a really fun conversation with my friend and colleague, Alexander Rossi. He's uh he did the um, uh, Brazil version of like the dog whisperer, but he's way better educated and has a nice scientific background Ooh. in ethology and he's a real great guy. Um, and we had this really fun philosophical conversation at a conference a couple of years ago about, how expectations are an antecedent or are antecedents and like stopping and thinking about that from the perspective of the person and the dog. Right. So, so genetics set expectations, prior experiences set expectations um, and personality sets expectations, conditions set expectations. I mean, there's all these kinds of subconscious things that are going on, but you know, if I, I was using the example with him at the time, like if, if you, if a man walks into a restaurant and gives you flowers, your expectations of that completely are going to inform how you respond. So if it's, you know, some guy that you just started dating and he walks in with flowers, you'd be like, oh, this is, this is so nice. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. But if he's your boyfriend, you've been dating for five years who you're expecting a diamond ring from and a proposal (laughs) and he brings you flowers instead, you're going to be like, oh, gosh, I'm so mad about that. You know, he brought me flowers and it's just expectations. So if the clients are being conditioned, let's just use that basic example by our whole field, by the industry, by society of it's all how you raise them. Just take them to doggy class, teach them the five basic commands, and then they're going to do whatever you say. And then they go out and they unhook the dog and it doesn't work. And they're like, well, but he didn't come. It's like, well, but he was a scent hound. So we need to adjust your expectations accordingly. Now you can abuse an animal into higher levels of compliance. Personally, I'm not going to have any part of that. I think that is so ethically left field to say, we're going to still allow scent dogs to be bred in the population. We're going to place them in pet non-working homes. And then we're going to shock them when they don't cooperate and they actually follow the instincts we put in there in the first place. Massive ethical dilemma. There. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's one of those things, you know, I get, I get friends who ask about breed preference, you know, like, Oh, you know, here's my lifestyle. Like what breed should I be thinking about? And I, I get a lot of, especially when I lived in Colorado, but here in Montana as well, a lot of people who are like, I'm thinking about a husky. And it's like, well, how important is being off-leash to you? Because yes, you can train a husky to be off-leash with you if when you're back in the backcountry. 
But if that is a huge part of your life, and for most of my friends, I have a lot of really like young outdoorsy mountain town friends, maybe not a husky is going to just set you up for success better and like getting your expectation out there right away. We're like, no, even if you get an eight week old baby husky and you start from there, you're making your job harder. Right. And it's not that they can't be trained to come when called. I mean, the way that I think about <clears throat> certain breeds, including scent hounds, is that you're, you absolutely do the training anyway. You pre-mac the daylights out of it. You find the things that are the most valuable for the dog and you use those things as um, <clears throat> the rewards for the dog cooperating so that you're not competing with the things that matter mm -hmm. to them. You're learning how to exploit them. There are so many wonderful ways to do that that are very effective. But I just know in the back of my mind, and I'm not going to fool myself or anyone otherwise, that there is a certain condition, and this is really true for any dog, that will present itself that at some point is going to automatically bypass frontal lobe and executive function filter. Dog won't even hear me because that's how releasing stimuli work. So if there's a particular instinct that gets activated in a particular condition, it's meant to bypass frontal lobe. Yeah. It just goes from stimuli to behavior without going through a filter. And, and I, it's just a matter of being well-educated about ethology enough for me to be realistic to say, you know, for this type of dog, like a Husky, the possibility of those things presenting themselves is higher. And do I really want to risk my dog's life over it? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. am I comfortable with a 30 foot leash that I might at some points have him dragging, knowing I can step on it when it starts getting towards the end, just to expand the freedom, but still have some safeties in place. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, really, I when I'm hiking and even I have a border collie and currently a Baltimore Island under my roof um, and they're both excellent off leash, but I still, you know, one of them has a GPS collar and the other one wears a bare bow and a 30 foot long line. Mm -hmm. Right, but, but I switch up which one, which one it is. But, you know, like we always have those measures in place. Um, and one of the uh, it's interesting, you know, like talking about these activating stimuli and things that are are supposed to bypass the frontal lobe. Um, there's a great discussion on that um, in the most recent Hidden Brain podcast episode, which is about the concept of rage. And oh, really? Yeah, it's really good. I'll link it in the show notes. But if they talk about how it's actually helpful for rage to bypass that frontal cortex um and yes there are times where it works poorly for us they gave the example of the the man in tunisia who set himself on fire and set off the arab spring um but they talk about how kind of that is the point of some of these emotions is that you you don't stop and think because if someone is going for your wallet or you know a basketball is going at your face and about to break your nose you know you're you don't want your prefrontal cortex to kick in there you need your lizard brain to kick in um yeah and i i love hearing that and I, I love talking about these things because i think we have this presumption with our concept of dominion over animals that everything should be going through frontal lobe i should be the constant filter you should always think about what i want you to do you're my minion you're my robot end of story. It's like, okay, but there's all these things, these natural laws, these operating systems, like, like the rage system, you know, um, like the way that modal action patterns work with releasing stimuli. And, and it's about the economy of behavior and also the economy of even your nervous system. You know, you using frontal lobe takes 10 times more energy for your brain and body than things that are bypassing frontal lobe. So instincts, emotions, especially lizard brain, powerful emotions about 
things that are more related to survival. Um, those things are meant to just not have to expend the energy of going through frontal lobe. So it's not that they're saying, well, it's not good to use your thinker. It's just there are certain conditions where there's enough reinforcement history genetically behind something to say it pays to react quickly. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of certain instincts, you know, if you look at modal action patterns for natural species, the things that have reached that level of modal action pattern, I love thinking about instincts as just having generations of reinforcement history. Yeah. If you really want to look at it as ABA, you know, it's just, it worked so much, so many times. It was that important to survival for so long that it just bypasses the filters. And yet, Think about artificial selection on top of that. We selected for those types of bypassed responses, and now we get mad when we see them. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there's two two points I, I'd like to make on this. One being, I think, and I'm obviously totally guilty of this, but I think a lot of trainers do a bit of a disservice in that so many trainers own these herding dogs that are kind of bred to constantly looking for instruction and constantly be looking for attention and I'm reminded of this so thoroughly every time I work with other breeds um, that you know when I do a demo video with my border collie or when I think about how I trained it with my border collie you know I I constantly have to be pulling myself back out of that and reminding myself that you know of working with Bolton the foxhound I mentioned earlier um, because I think so many of us trainers have this this lens of working with dogs that we, you know, we like training. We selected a dog that wants to train, that wants to work with us, but that's not necessarily what our clients have. And making making sure that we're giving advice that fits those dogs as well is really important. Exactly. So, you know, for me, changing the culture of it's all how you raise them is at the heart of that. You know, we should all be professionally compelled to learn about all of the histories of the genetic working groups of dogs. Pitch out my book there, Meet Your Dog, if you want a quick and dirty study and you don't want to nerd out for 10, 20 years like I did going through all of them separately and get a nice little consolidated version of it. But I think it's imperative that we have that as a point of reference because otherwise, we are only partially informed about the dogs that we're working with. You know, I have a personal goal that I'm going to own one dog from every genetic group before my life is over Uh so that I've lived with them, you know, their whole life. And I I understand what those differences are. They're, they're my own little Conrad Lorenz duck study, you know, or what have you that I've got going on just over the course of my years of work where, you know, I mean, my, my guardian, my Pyrenees mix She's Pyrenees, Newfoundland, half and half. And I've had nothing but herding dogs and, you know, toy dogs, bully mixes, um, Labradors, retrievers, haven't had a sight hound yet, um, have had scent hounds. Um, And and so, you know, working with her, it was like I realized how much I took for granted with a herding dog because she was just so unimpressed by my will, my will meant nothing to a dog that was literally bred to live outside in the pasture without a human. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, um, yeah, I'm thinking so one of my favorite books when I was a teenager was this book called raising the peaceable kingdom, which is a guy who our family, I don't remember, but they raised, they had like a couple rats, some ducklings, a dog, a cat, couple other animals and they got all of these baby animals at within like a week of each other and then raised them all together um and it was you know i'm now as you're talking about these different breeds it's like man i would never do this but it'd be so cool 
to yeah. copy from all of each of the groups. Yeah, and raise them together. Ray, Ray did a little mini version of that, Ray Coppinger with just Pyrenees and Border Collies, you know, uh-huh. and, and he, that was kind of something that he and Lorna did together. They they would go, they pulled dogs from all over the world and they would bring back puppies from different litters and then, you know, raise them in the same conditions and then just watch the emergent behaviors and what happened and at what different points in development. And, you know, it's just fascinating seeing what's innate and, and, and even flexibly innate, you know, I say innate as an innately predisposed, not yeah. innately predetermined. And, and I do think that's an important distinction because people start getting really scared about the slippery slope that like, if we're saying that genes matter at all, what does that mean for breeds of dogs whose histories include some really horrible things? And does it mean that those dogs are going to express those behaviors? No. Yeah. But it yeah. means if you if you're honest, then you know and you're aware and realistic about a certain propensity that is in all of the different breeds and groups of dogs that is not likely to be present in the other groups of dogs. Now there's always variation. So you could have, you know, the lemon of the border collie, a lemon of a guardian, a lemon of a terrier, and you will have those outliers. But, you know, generally you're going to have this standard deviation, a variation of those instincts that we selected for. And the more we know about it, the more we can be prepared to buffer against those things through our socialization and training mm-hmm. and exposure and all of the intentional experiences we're creating. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the last notes that I kind of wanted, and this is where I'm a little late on this one, but I kept having it slip out of my brain, um, going back to thinking about, you know, off leash reliability with different breeds. Um, and one of the things that I've found really interesting is I think a lot of people think recall, um, when they're thinking about off-leash reliability, and I find it's much more about the dog having kind of a spatial awareness bubble of knowing where you are and staying close off the oh, I love that. Um, because it's absolutely possible to teach this beautiful recall with a lot of dogs, you know, and it's possible to teach a lot of these dogs to work through that level of arousal. You know, again, obviously it, it, it is going to be challenging with a sight hound or scent hound or other dog that's really locked onto something, but but that is still different from, you know, that assumes that you're going to be able to see that the dog is taking off and call them at all um, versus the dog who kind of is able to stick around on his or her own, um, you know, see stuff, take off and, and check back in with you. And I find personally, that's much more important to me. I've walked with dogs that have this beautiful recall, but you're still having to watch the dog all the time that you know to call them. Uh, right. And, and you're almost hyper dependent and hyper contriving. And I actually tell a lot of my clients, I think people use recalls way too much. I think people call their dog way too much. And if you have an independent minded dog, the more you call them, the more pissed off they're going to get. Because, mm-hmm. and I, I tell my clients all this, like, okay, so if you're sitting right here and you're working with me and your boyfriend's in the other room and he says, you know, Hey, Kayla, come in here for a minute with some sense of excitement or urgency. And you're like, hold on a minute, Kim. And you get up and you go in there. Yeah, honey, what is it? nothing. I just wanted to tell you that I love you. Okay. I'm busy. I'm going to go back to the podcast. Now you go back to the podcast and then 10 minutes later, Hey, Kayla, come in here for a minute. And you go in there. Yes, honey. What is it? Nothing. I just really like your hair today. Awesome. I'm kind of in the middle of something. And, and we do that with dogs where they're very consumed in their experiences and worlds, especially outside or socializing with other dogs. And we're like, come here. And they're like, okay, what? And we're like, nothing. 
good dog. And they're like, okay, (laughs) here's a cookie. And they're like, you know, I really was having more fun with the dog. So we're, we're not becoming fair and realistic to the terms. And like you, I actually don't call my dogs near as often as I talk to them from a distance and verbally steer them. So if I have three and a half acres here and I walk my dogs out here, and if I see that one of them is headed down a little trail that I don't want to walk down, I'll say "Ah, this way. And the dog stops and steers right. I don't need them to come all the way back to me. That's excessive. It's, it's too controlling. I just need them to say, we're not going that way today. We're going this way. And so I try to tell people be really deliberate and very concrete so that it's not a matter of come to me, come to me all the time. It's things like in the house now, up the stairs, wait here, don't go yet. Okay, now you can go again. And it isn't always just come, come, come. That's that oversimplified model that we just haven't evolved out of I think yeah yeah and I most of the time I prefer not to be giving instructions at all you know I'd like a dog has half an eye on me and is following me you know has learned to wait at corn you know at um intersections you know we don't need to go down a huge off-leash um tangent I actually think this would be a super interesting one to get someone who does a lot of off like maybe someone who does off-leash hiking as their business um but uh yeah, like I think we get so focused on recall and like a beautiful recall and a nice dog to work off leash with are not the same thing. Uh, I agree. So, And there's a lot of dogs that have a beautiful recall and they still aren't very cognizant of where you are in space. If you happen to recall them in a condition where they're not already completely distracted, you might get a really beautiful recall 99% of the time. But then I don't feel like I have that sense of connection when I'm outside with them. And like you, I want to let them I mean, when I'm walking out here with my dogs, I'm not talking to them 90% of the time. I'm just walking, they're sniffing, they're exploring. If they find something interesting, I might say, what do you smell? Just to talk to them about things, but not telling them how to interact with that environment, you know? Yeah. And and yeah. I think that's, again, you know, we've had a loss of, I think, a lot of the ethology values because it's gotten associated with the wolf pack dominant alpha kind of mentality that that really we don't like. So we threw all that out because a lot of that old wolf research isn't really well, it's definitely not apples to apples with dogs. Um, but we threw out things like social psychology and social referencing, you know, also something Laura Donaldson talked about at Mike Shikashio's conference, um, the aggression and dogs conference. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those things matter, you know, what building a relationship, I think is the number one thing that provides off leash stability. So when my clients say, well, okay, so my dog does this and this and this, he jumps on people, he barks at things all the time. He takes things off the counter. He, you know, no manners at all, no regard for people's stuff, personal space, whatever. But I want him to come when called, can we start there? I said, absolutely not. Yeah. Because if there's no respect and rapport and, and boundaries and understanding and kind of just group stability and sense of agreement about our terms, why on earth is that dog going to listen to you when you unhook him outside? He's not. And if I were him, I wouldn't either. Yeah. So, you know, it's like if you're a parent and your kid's running amok through the house and doing whatever they want and throwing temper tantrums, and then you go out in public and you expect them to be perfectly behaved, you're going to have another thing coming. Yeah. Yeah. I think this kind of ties into as well. Sarah Strumming says this often, and I mean, I'm, she, this isn't the most original idea ever, but I'm going to credit her with it anyway. Um, because she says it often is you know, and this is a little bit more related to like humane hierarchy, but if your dog is chronically under-exercised, trying to teach them to sit and work on impulse control around when you pick up the leashes 
or trying to work recall when you take them out isn't going to work because they they need more you know I find Marley's behavior every spring you know every time I take him out for the first hike of the year in April um I'm like oh my god my dog doesn't know how to be off leash he's a monster um, because we've been cooped up all winter and I take him cross-country skiing and he gets out, you know, he gets a ton. Um, we go trail running, but he doesn't get that same like off-leash, like manic freedom. Mm-hmm. And every year, you know, around August, September, I'm starting to be like, hot damn, I'm a good dog trainer. Um, <laughs> he's getting hiked multiple times a week, so yeah. getting used to it. So when clients are like, he, they lose their mind when we pick up the leashes for walks or they lose their, their mind when we unclip the leash on a hike. Like, yes, you need to do more of it, you know, um, just right, right. isn't going to cut it because the dog actually needs, they're losing their minds because they're not getting enough. And this is Barley. This is your dog. This is the dog of someone who understands all of this. Think of our clients, our average clients and their lifestyles and their dogs. And, you know, I've seen so much increasing frustration behavior in dogs these last few years. You know, I just feel like it's getting worse and worse. And dogs that are just like temper tantrum, biting the leash, just angry, frustrated, annoyed, like, take it off. Leave me alone. Let me go. We've been inside all day. You've been in, you've been gone. I've been in a crate. You're just, you know, I'm so frustrated. And then we finally get out at the park and you're giving me a foot of leash and this is mm-hmm. it. And, and the rage almost in some situations starts to trigger in where you're yeah. just getting too much pressure in the volcano and, and then frontal lobes in the toilet anyway. Right. Because I can't think straight because I'm so frustrated. And and that's a whole nother conversation in itself about how our pet dogs are captive. And we forget that. And just the loss of homeostasis and the ability to create homeostasis for oneself, because we can't reconcile our environment with our needs. And then, you know, we're like, now I want it to do this. And I don't want it to do this. And I want it to do this. And we trainers, honestly, are a little too obliging to our clientele, Mm -hmm. and probably need to get more confident about being really frank with people and unapologetic like, hey, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. But you need to understand the root of what you're observing. And and we need to find real ways to let the pressure out of the can. So we've got a new place here. And I, it's amazing. I'll give a shout out to it. It's called Love of the Pup. A, a trainer and a vet tech started it. And it originally was just going to be like an eight acre like daycare, like with a nature theme. Ooh. And in COVID, they did what I've been wanting someone to do for decades, which is you have a rentable, secure, oh, that's eight acre. It's not a dog park. It's yours. You rent it. It's your hour. $20, eight acres, you and your dogs close the door behind you. There need to be one of those in every city in the United States, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I was so lucky where I live here in uh, Missoula, but it's not helpful if your dog is dog aggressive. I mean, we have tons and tons of off leash friendly hikes within like literally a 10 minute drive from downtown. Um, and there's actually the running trail that is less than a block from my apartment. If I go two miles, it's off leash. Um, and it's just like, it's a river path. It's paved. It goes, or it's, uh, it's gravel. It goes for miles. 
but that's still none of that's helpful if your dog is dog aggressive. Right. And a lot of people have dogs that are dog aggressive and they can't do that. And my whole vision for all these years, having worked with so many dogs that are aggressive is where do they go? They can't go to the dog park. They can't be hiking off leash. So they're, they're more frustrated dogs that are already dealing with other behavior problems and anxiety and frustration. Then they're double frustrated because they never get to let the pressure out of the can. And I, I think while sometimes medication is the kindest thing, I think it's erroneous to think that that's what's actually going on, that those dogs necessarily needed medication in the first place. And and at a certain point, our society's got to sit back and talk about what Sue Sternberg has been talking about, which is we better start selecting for our environments and our expectations and our lifestyles. We we better start breeding for pet dogs. And we really need to, you know, look at shelters and the whole spay neuter thing and say, you know, if a gem comes through, find him a girlfriend. (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah. um, don't, don't yeah. chop him off and, and, and put that back in the gene pool. And, yeah. and we really need to change the value of purebred dogs and working dogs. And right now, honestly, it's just getting worse. I'm seeing more and more dogs that don't belong in the pet population in the pet population. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I've said this about, I've said this on a podcast before and you know, that Barley, I mean, he is one of the least neurotic border collies I've ever met who still retains a lot of amazing working ability. Um, God, I wish he had his balls when I'd adopted him. I don't know if I would have bred him right away, but I think now that I know him a lot better, um, I've had him three and a half years. If I had the option, I, you know, I mean, and I would have said, hey, for performance dogs, breed him with my old Aussie, who was the nicest Aussie I'd ever met. She was the least neurotic, most good natured, mm-hmm. type B, type A Aussie ever. <laughs> you know, yeah. she was she was cool. And, and you know, but we don't uh, most people breeding. They don't even know what they're breeding for. They're breeding for color. They're breeding for confirmation. They're breeding for, oh, it won Westminster, which just breeds dogs that carry themselves like they're all that in a bag of chips because they won the show. And then so we're breeding for more and more confident dogs. Um, There's so many issues. And, you know, we can't solve them all overnight, obviously. But my whole thing is, hey, let's at least talk about it. I'm so glad you're doing stuff like this. Yeah. Well, this is I mean, we we just had um, the uh, the functional dog podcast. kind of came on here and we talked to them about it. And that's, I mean, I'm so excited that someone's like taking this on as their, their main project. It's like, let's talk about breeding dog for the job that we want them to have, which for most dogs is being a pet. Um, yeah. Let's do some simple takeaways from ethology that owners and trainers can use for their dogs. So, you know, we've talked to, um, I know I've heard you talk in the past about the legs, um, acronym and how useful that is. I know I've helped clients make ethograms before, you know, what are some of the things that owners and trainers can take away from ethology and, and put to the test, you know, see how it works for them. You know, I, I, I think um, my personality is probably less technical uh, than, than maybe some other trainers in that I tend to always look for how to push the easy button, which makes me really good at relating to my clients. Cause I'm that same person. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to overcomplicate things. I don't want to give myself a bunch of homework and neither do my clients want that kind of homework. Um, so I tend to look at it like, 
How can you change the reality that you have and your daily routines and your daily experiences and your expectations and your understanding and your ways of relating on the whole based on a new appreciation of seeing where your dog is coming from genetically, ethologically? And um, for me anyway, working with clients, I've, I've found that to be profoundly effective, as overly simple as that sounds. In that if they just have an understanding of why they're seeing what they're seeing Mm -hmm. and they change their expectations accordingly, and then they start working with the behavior, you know, based on the stuff we've been talking about, about appropriate outlets for the expression of those behaviors and the right kind of enrichment for different kinds of dogs. um, And then not setting the dog up for failure because they're creating conditions that the dog was bred to act on and then having the dog act unfavorably in those conditions and then being frustrated with the dog, how to set up environments and, and more local antecedents based on those more distant global genetic antecedents. Um, and so, you know, again, shameless plug of my book, I think for a lot of owners, you know, the reason I wrote it was because I wanted to be helpful, not because I thought I'd make money writing a book. It's because I felt like there was a hole out there in the information world for your average dog owner of like, where do you get the information without it being biased by a breeder's website because they're trying to sell something right. um, or right. even certain breed groups that are, they just, they want to tell all the finer points of a breed and they don't want to tell you the less, you know, um, colored or colorful um, positive kind of points of what the breed history was. And I want to give people the truth of the history so that they can integrate that themselves into what they're living with um, and maybe make different decisions about the dog that they're going to be adopting into their life. So, you know, I'm sure that as we continue this conversation as a profession, there will be people that join the conversation and say, I have an idea. That's something I never thought of because they're much better at the technical stuff than I am, or they have thought about a whole other application to a, you know, another element that hasn't even crossed my mind. And, you know, that was, that's my hope. And that was literally the conclusion of the book is that I'm not saying this is a comprehensive analysis of the conversation. I just hope it starts one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's funny. I think, I wonder if it, is somehow related to how attracted we both are to ethology. Obviously you have dedicated your life to it more than I have yet, but um, I feel like I have a similar, uh, especially when I go to dog training conferences, I often feel like, wow, you guys make this complicated. Like these are beautiful training plans and like the behaviors you're getting are amazing, but like, God, that's not what my business looks like. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's impressive. It's a different model, but like oh, yeah. really yeah. highly technical criteria, behavior plans. I mean, I'm telling my clients, well, you know, here's you want to you want to give a treat about half as frequently every time you reinforce for a downstay. So if you give one at five seconds and the next one, give it around 10 seconds, but don't time it. Don't get like that. Don't start writing it down. Just feel it around double it, stretch it like, you know, a little bubble. And it's funny because I've had more success with clients, the less technical I've been. And I was never technical, but at the beginning of the career, like you talked about, you came into it, you're a trainer, you're like, I'm, it's all ABA. That's what people are doing. And so I got to get really, really good at all of these like really highly technical plans and I didn't have as much success with clients. My clients were like super frustrated and, and overwhelmed. And, and yet when I found simpler ways to strategically design, okay, do this this way instead of this way, you know, simpler hacks into those, those pieces and of the puzzle trying to fit together more harmoniously, 
people had crazy wicked behavior change much faster than when I was going through that more extensive process. Now that might be not be everyone's experience, but it's been mine. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I haven't written a training plan for a client in months, if not a couple of years. Oh, it's been years for me. But I, but here's the thing. I take literally violent notes on every client <laughs> such that everyone jokes, Kim, I couldn't read your handwriting if I tried because I write down everything they say yeah. so that it, it's all digesting into my process understanding. It's not like I'm just kind of giving them something generic and I'm too lazy to write a training plan. Yeah. I've found it's just more organic than that. And, and it's more like I'm looking at it like if I were to go to a psychiatrist, they're not going to give me a behavior plan. They're going to talk to me you know, or a psychologist more, even I think it's a little different from the psychiatrist model. Um, they're going to talk to me. It's my job to listen and pay attention and try to implement what I'm learning from that. And so I, I'm really good about, okay, let's, what's going on. Let's recap. Let's talk about all the pieces of the puzzle. These are the things we're going to change. Okay. This is what we'll do about that. And then at the end, I recap just to make sure we're all on the same page, this and this and this, these are the things we're going to tweak. Great. Awesome. Talk to you next week. How did it go? I can check my notes and see these are the things we were tweaking, right? How did the tweaking go? And then we can troubleshoot that and then kind of organically move forward. But um, I think my clients are actually relieved since I've, you know, taken that different model and it definitely feels better for me. I don't get so much compassion fatigue and just kind of job fatigue from it because um, I'm, I'm more organic about my own process. Um, and again, I mean, my records are great when I need to write a case summary for a veterinarian, veterinary behaviorist, what have you, I have all the information I need to do that. And I can tell them exactly what we did and the dates that we did it. But um, it, it does relieve some of the pressure from the day to day process for me and the clients. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, just because I didn't mention legs. Can we uh, can we explain what that acronym is, and then I will let you go. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem at all. This has been an absolute blast. Yeah. Um, so the legs acronym is uh, learning environment, genetics, and self. And the reason I came up with the acronym for actually the funny thing is I hate acronyms. I was always that person that's like I hate acronyms for things. They're just so <laughs> stupid. And then I was like. Oh God, this needs an acronym. Um, but it's because as I started in applied ethology, it's a very um, interdisciplinary field, yeah. meaning it's like pulling from all sorts of other sciences to try to look at what happens between people and animals and captive and domestic species. And so I was pulling from all these different fields and I was you know, going down all these rabbit holes, holes of research and concepts and understanding and terms. And I was like, everyone needs to know all of these things. It's all so important. And then I had this moment of like professional panic, like, but how do we share it? What do I do? Do I just make a list of like all of the things that people need to be studying and they need to go read this research paper and read this book and make sure they know about this concept? And I got so overwhelmed that I was like, you can't just tell people, well, you have to know all the things you have, you know, you have to make it digestible and palatable. And so looking at a concept as simple as, as phenotype and in biology, the phenotype being, you know, the, the complete picture of the animal in terms of, you know, it, it's, it's behavior and response in a certain ecosystem habitat niche with the genetics and biology they bring to the table and how they're learning and adapting to those changing conditions through the course and development of their life with their internal health and sex and hormones and all that good stuff. So it's like a word that just means all the things. But even then, it doesn't tell us what to remember. It's almost too small. It's phenotype. And I just rambled about what phenotype is, which means if you were my client, you heard nothing that I said. 
But if I show a client my little form that says L-E-G-S, learning environment, genetics, and self, this is your dog's genetics that he is bringing to the table, the potential, the kind of bedrock of what they're bringing to the table from those generations of reinforcement history. This is what we know about your current environment. This is what we know about his past environment. This is what we know about his learning or what what we don't know about his learning or our goals in his learning. These are the things in his internal conditions we have to keep in mind. He's a five-year-old intact male who happens to have hip dysplasia, chronic ear infections, and a skin condition. All of that is going to matter. And so I wanted a way to just map it. And it tells me I can go down all those rabbit holes further if I want, but it makes sure I don't forget to look under any of the four component rocks. Yeah, I love that. It's definitely one that I think I've now heard you use it a couple of times. And I think it's one that I, I might need to put on a sticky note for a while so that I can really learn to like, incorporate it well because I love how it just kind of synthesizes down a lot of the things that I I think I already think about when I'm putting together you know an intake form or quizzing a client quizzing is the wrong word but talking to a client (laughs) um but yeah I love I love kind of having it broken down in a way that just makes it a little bit easier I think that's what's so sticky about like the ABCs of applied behavior analysis and not there's anything wrong with those in some in you know places but I you know, having a couple different tools that we can pull out. And especially when we're getting stuck with a case, you know, if you've been doing nothing but ABA and, you know, just antecedent behavior consequence, antecedent behavior consequence over and over with the case and you're not getting anywhere, like that's a really, really good time to pull back a little bit and be like, all right, do we need to, do we need to think about this from a medical lens or an ethological lens or a neuroscience lens? Or- yes. You know what? Yeah. Or what, what? What else might be going on in the larger environment? Do you live near a mall with you know too much activity, and you happen to have a herding dog who's hypervigilant to environmental stimuli? I mean, like, you know, the whole idea of like, what have I not looked at yet? It helped me to just, you know, it's like the biopsychosocial model in psychology, right? It's like we have other frameworks for thinking about these kinds of things, and applied ethology is definitely one of those fields that like teaches you you got to think about all the things. Yeah. But I do think yeah. that the applied behavior analysis is 100% legitimate, but it's an L. Yeah. With a little bit of E and some definite nod to the S about the internal conditions doesn't do a whole lot with the G, even though radical behaviorism says that, okay, yes, all of those things are very real. We give lip service to it, but we don't integrate it into our behavior work very well. Yeah. You know, and we don't look there for answers as much because we are scared, honestly, because of all the concerns about implications and stuff with genetics that we're not going to like what we find in some cases, but we have to be comfortable and realistic enough to be willing to look. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh... And I think most of the trainers that I look up to, who I think are the best trainers, they do incorporate these things, but they don't necessarily know that that's what they're doing. And I love how we're having more and more of these conversations. And it feels like behavior consultants in particular, um, who really specialize in behavior issues, have gotten really good at, you know, knowing when to put on that veterinary hat, just enough to say, okay, we need to bring in a veterinarian. Um, and getting up outside of ABA a little bit there. Um, and again, the, the really good trainers I know um, do think about the genetics and, you know, the, these other aspects more. Um, but I love kind of intentionally reminding ourselves about it instead of it kind of being like, 
we mostly look at it through this lens and then occasionally because we're good at, you know, because we're good at this, we also remember these other things. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I'm completely following you. And I, I agree a hundred percent. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that for whatever reason, and I actually, I, I may give Mike Shikashio all the credit here. I feel like Mike Shikashio is pushing the ball down the field. Mike Shikashio is pushing the evolution of the conversation right now. And I am giving him a lot of mad credit for that because he deserves it. He's been bringing brave enough to say there's more going on than the L and the learning and ABA and we shouldn't be ignoring it. We should be welcoming this. We should be growing for and learning from each other and saying, what do you know? Tell me about neuroscience of aggression, you know, tell me about social psychology, you know, tell me about ethology and um, evolutionary biology and epigenetics and, and not, not in a way where anyone is saying, well, this is the answer in a way where we're all approaching it with the true spirit of science, which is curiosity. I want to learn more. I want to integrate. I want to grow. I want to know things tomorrow that I didn't know today. And I think there, there are more and more of those minds in the field that are saying it's not about conformity. It's not about being political and having this polarized debate where, you know, we're just kind of judging and throwing stones we're ready to mature. The public needs us to mature. Dogs need us to mature. Um, and yeah, Mike's making it happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, what got me to, to actually sign up for the aggression doc conference was when I, I don't remember whether I saw it on his, it's like on his social media or if it was in a conversation with him, but he said, you know, part of my goal here is to bring in all these speakers you've never heard before through these different lenses. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need that. You know, um, that is, I, yeah, I, it, it's really awesome that he's been doing that. Um, so let's, let's wrap up. I promise I'd let you go. Um, we have to go long on this podcast. Um, so where can people find you? Any other resources that you want to, to throw into the mix and then we'll, we'll let you get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so people can find us on uh, the dog door. It's dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com is our website. Um, and also, of course, through the book, which is available on Amazon and really wherever books are sold. And that's the meat um, book. That's Meet Your Dog. Yep. Um, and the Game Changing Guide to Understanding Your Dog's Behavior is the subtitle. And um, I'm going to be doing something really, really exciting at Wolf Park this coming August, assuming COVID allows us, where we're going to be doing the first ever certificate course in family dog mediation, which is teaching people like us in our field how to integrate legs and practice with real clients. And so it goes deep dive into filling the gaps of applied ethology for people that are in the industry that haven't been able to get those pieces. And then it teaches people how to integrate it. We're going to have real cases there. We're working with the staff at Wolf Park to have demonstrations about like learning environment genetics and self components through examples of things in the wolves. So like it will be learning a concept and then having a live demonstration with wolves and it's just going to be amazing. So I'm very excited about that. That's August of 2021. Uh, and then just recently, if people are interested, I, I created this because we started having demand. We're now doing professional consultations for um, people that are already working with behavior trainers and, and behavior consultants. If they want to do uh, any consultations with us on ethology, because they maybe are stuck with a case or they feel like there's just something they want to know more about and they want to see if ethology has the answers. So if folks want to just reach out because they professionally want to grow a little bit, we're doing kind of mini mentoring.
doing through um, Zoom sessions with clients around the country and actually around the world. We've got some in Australia at the moment. Wow, that's really cool. I love that you're offering that. Um, that's certainly something I will keep in, in my back pocket going forward. Um, all right. So as I said, we're going to try to get Kim back on and talk about dominance at some point. Um, I'm not going to make any promises about when that will air, but I, that was the original idea here. Um too much to mark that in mythology. It's just too cool. Um, so you'll have that to look forward to. So now that we're leaving, finally, make sure you guys are subscribed to Canine Conversations wherever you're listening to this. Um, you guys can find episode notes where I'll include all the links we mentioned today um, at canineconvos.com and it's canine all spelled out. Um, you guys can also contact us either by commenting on our Facebook page, um, sending us a message there, or emailing us at hello at canineconvos.com Again, canine is all spelled out, and we'd love to hear from you guys. So I'm Kayla from Journey Dog Training, and um, we'll talk to you guys next time.